Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church. This week, we continue through the book of Romans, and during this sermon, we look at how in justification, we are freed from the law and joined to Christ. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 13, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Sin is Incited by the Law. Keep working our way through this passage, Romans 7. Um, before we get started, a little bit to pass along to you as we're getting back into the swing of things. Excited uh, to tell you next Sunday, um, we will be uh, celebrating the Lord's Supper together. Um, Pastor Ben and I had conversations uh, about how to do this in the safest way possible. And just to kind of let you know, going overboard in what we believe is necessary, but that's part of what we're trying to show love and grace in these things. So we've talked through ways to do this safely and as sterile as possible and such. So we'll be communicating all of that next Sunday. But we always give the announcement for the week to be spent in confession of sin and such. And then uh, uh, another thing coming up is we decided that uh, uh, come July, we'll start up our discipleship groups again. We're excited to get those back up and going. I've been missing those badly. Um, Again, just to kind of let you sort of know, that's waiting longer than Pastor Ben and I think is necessary. But this is trying to, we not everybody thinks in the exact same way about when we ought to start everything. So in trying to be loving and gracious and patient and such, we're going to wait till July to get things up and going. So put those things on your calendar, please. And they'll be coming up uh, here soon. Romans chapter 7. I want to start in verse 1. The primary truth that we'll be focusing in on today will be in verses 4, 5, and 6. But 7 through 11, we'll also have more to say in some future weeks, but on the subject we're looking at. But to see more of the, the, the passage, the context, we're going to read the first 13. So please read along with me. Or do you not know, brethren, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law has jurisdiction over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he is living. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if while her husband is living, she is joined to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law so that she is not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. And therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead in order that we might bear fruit for God. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. But now we've been released from the law, having died to that by which we were bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? May it never be. On the contrary, I would not have come to know sin except through the law, for I would not have known about coveting if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, taking opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. For apart from the law, sin is dead. I was once alive apart from the law, 
But when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. And this commandment, which was to result in life, proved to result in death for me. For sin, taking an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Therefore, did that which is good become a cause of death for me? May it never be. Rather, it was sin in order that it might be shown to be sin by affecting my death through that which is good so that through the commandment, sin would become utterly sinful. Let's pray and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, Lord, a whole bunch of unworthy people, we come and we gather before you. Father, we come to you not claiming anything in ourselves that says, Lord, you should hear us and you should accept us because we've done this deed and that deed and all of these great things. Father, your word tells us our condition that were it not for, were it not for the fact that you chose to have mercy, were it not for the fact that you chose to pour out grace and make a way to save unworthy sinners, we would have no access to you. But the blood, the death, and the resurrection of Christ gives us our access. Lord, and this is our hope. We rejoice in the fact that you've looked on us who deserve hell and you've welcomed us, called us to come and have forgiveness of sins, cleansing, and you're even at work right now transforming us and giving us the promise of one day all will be made new. We will be brought to be glorified and enter your kingdom. Lord, you are our hope. And Father, we want this time that we're in this body, in this life, to please you. And so we pray, O oh God, that as we worship now in the study of your word, that you'll bring these things about. We pray for you to bring about transformation. We've got specific truths we're thinking on from this passage. I ask, O oh God, that you give us understanding and that in understanding these truths, that we would be changed, that we would be we would be inspired, Lord, that we would be brought to uh, joy in this work that you're doing. We would see the beauty of it and Father then would participate all the more. So Lord, please accomplish your purposes. Those who are in Christ in the room, we pray, oh God, that you build us up. And those listening that have never responded to the gospel, never turned to Christ to be saved, please God, we pray, make this the day that it happens. Help me, Lord, to, to do this job and, and to do it in a way that is useful. So, Father, please give your grace and bless. We ask all these things through Christ our Savior. Amen. Well, after a week like this, a tumultuous week, um, where we have seen um, a murder and we grieve with the family of the man who was killed, and then consequently see cities burn in response. There's always this, there's always this question that Pastor Ben and I will have. It's, it's should we press pause on what we're studying to address these matters going on in society specifically? Because there is a need for this. There is a need to occasionally stop what we're doing systematically and just think on a pandemic or a famine 
or what we're seeing in the nation. And so there, there comes this question, would this be most beneficial? When these things hit in the world, we do need to know how to see it, how to interpret it, how to think rightly about it, and then how to respond to these things. But what I hope that we are seeing, Christian, as we are studying through Romans is that God is addressing this and a thousand other sins, a thousand other circumstances in a cursed world. But when the Bible does it, it's always doing it. I really appreciated Marcus's prayer as we got started this morning. I, I hope you, you heard carefully what he was saying, that when the world tries to address these things, it, it's always in a way that, I, I don't mean offense in saying it, but it's always in a way that is, it's, it's child's play. It's the kiddie pool. When the word of God addresses these things, it's showing us the roots. It's bringing us down to the depths to understand all the way down to the bottom what is, what is happening here in the world. And God shows us, he gives us eyes to see, and then we see how to rightly respond. We see racism and revenge, but listen, listen to me, neither one of those is a tree in itself. Neither one of those is the big thing itself. That those sins are among a thousand individual other kinds of sins. Racism is, is not the big entity itself. Of course, the Bible will address individual sins and we need to do that. And throughout Romans, when we come to chapters 9, 10, and 11, we are going to deal with racism. It comes up in the Bible. And there's a way that we are to look at individual sins. But understand that things like, if we just take one individual sin, like racism, it's not its own tree. It's one fruit on a branch, a branch called hatred. That branch grows on a tree called pride. The tree grows in a field called the sinful condition. Or sometimes how the Bible will just address sin, singular. And what we're seeing the book of Romans show us is that Christ came to redeem us from, yes, individual sins that we can talk about and we can see demonstrated, but Christ came to redeem us, not just from individual things. He came to plow the whole field. He came to cut down the whole tree. He came to re-sow new, new plants, new trees. Christ came to redeem us, and that means forgive us and cleanse us, give us eternal life, but it also means to reform, transform, conform us to the image of Christ, remake, recreate us into the likeness of Christ. And so what we are studying in Romans 7 is addressing this and everything else that we will wrestle with in our hearts and every single time we look at the world and we see chaos, what Christ came in the gospel to accomplish is remaking the world, remaking our hearts, addressing all of these things. And chapters six and seven have been showing us how he is doing that. The Bible goes to great lengths so that we understand here's how Jesus redeemed us, saved us, and here's how he's remaking us. Here's how he's recreating his people. 
Here's the method of God in transforming us. Chapter seven has been taking the truth that we have been freed from the law. And on the surface level, that can just sound <laughs> theoretical. You know, it can just sound like the stuff that, you know, the, the people who like books, they can think on those kinds of things. But what we have been seeing is how these these things that Christ accomplished in justification are bringing real life transformation. You and I struggle with sin every single day. We love the God who saved us. We're striving to try to offer our lives as a sacrifice. Practically speaking, tomorrow when I get angry, how do I battle this? That is what Romans 7 is addressing but it is beginning to show it in the big picture things and then we're moving to the more specific. But if we're gonna deal with things not just in the, in the kiddie pool kinds of ways, we have to understand what God is doing in those big picture and even the behind the scenes kinds of things. What is happening invisibly? What is, what is he doing in the heavenly realms? That's what chapter seven is showing. Something has happened to us in Christ and it is bringing practical change to life. And we see some of that application today in justification. So here, here would be kind of a central idea statement for this morning in justification. We are freed from the law and joined to a person. We're not just joined to another law. There is another law. But that's not the big deal. We're joined to a person. We're joined to the Lord Jesus himself and he is bringing change to our lives. And there is a way we are to lean into this, rejoice and participate in his work of transforming us. So I told you last week, whenever we began this chapter, that verses one through 13, the way that I've outlined it, I see four major points made. Last Sunday, we uh, studied the first one, just making the case we're freed from the law. This Sunday, we continue with the second point, primarily found in verse five, though, though more truths are stated. The primary truth is this. Sin is incited by the law. To say it another way, sin is aroused. Uh, sin is multiplied. Sin is flared up by the law. And so we'll spend uh, the bulk of our time uh, making that case and understanding what that means, but there's a counterpoint to it as well. There's a great change in the fact that we've been delivered from the law and united to Christ. The, the great change, the great turn, the great difference, the new birth is that we are united to Christ and it means a new way of living. So, Point number two, sin is incited by the law. There'll be two sub points underneath it. I'll kind of try to tell you as we go. Look at verse five with me again. For while we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in the members of our body to bear fruit for death. Last week, we talked about what it means to be freed from the law. And we said it means at least three things. So Romans has showed us three things. The first one, if you remember back in the sections of uh, chapter three and chapter five, we have been saved from the penalty of the law. The law says, if you break it, you die. 
We broke it. We were on our way to eternal wrath of God. God saved us from that by Christ taking the penalty on our behalf and us being counted with his righteousness. So that's the first part that was in the past. Chapter seven has shown us two more things that it means to be freed from the law. The second thing we saw is that we're freed from the situation we were under by being attached to the law. The situation we were under is that we were on our own. See, this is a major point into understanding this whole concept of the law. The the law, just straight, the, the law of God in that condition, the law doesn't offer help. Like if you break it, the law doesn't come along and say, here, let me, let me help you up off the ground. Let me, let me, let me help shake the dust off and, and let me help you move on to get forgiveness and then to honor God. The, the law doesn't do that. The law is just, here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. And here's what happens if you break it. The law simply declares the commandments of God. We were in that situation and we were on our own and in our weakness, that meant we were in a helpless place. So the second thing that it means that we're freed from the law is we've been put in a new situation. And then the third thing, and it's similar, but it's a continuation of the second one is this. The law had a powerful influence on us. The law had a powerful influence. Because we are fallen, depraved sinners, with rebellious hearts, the powerful effect that it had on us was a desire to break it because we have in the flesh this desire to be bad. In the flesh, our heart puffs its chest against the law of God. Don't don't you be telling me what to do is, is the thinking of the heart. I wanna be my own Lord. I want to call my shots. It's my life. It's my body. It's this puffing of the chest against the rule and authority of God. And it actually causes sin to flare up and multiply learning of the law of God. Well, it's the second two that we really have in view here in chapter seven. And the third one, especially that we're thinking about today in that sin is incited by the law. So you notice verse five begins with while we were in the flesh. You see that phrase there. Uh, One thing that'll help you as you study the Bible, when the Bible uses that phrase, the flesh, it uses it in in two different ways. Um, Sometimes when it uses it, it just means it just totally, literally, okay? Talking about your physical body, okay? Jesus came in the flesh and he was sinless. But the second way that the Bible will use that phrase, the flesh, is in a metaphorical kind of way. And it's synonymous with the sin nature. It's synonymous with our our fallen condition. So Jesus came in the flesh, meaning he came in a physical body, but he did not have the flesh, a sin nature. One of the things scripture will say is he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. He looked like us, but did not have the sin nature. And so as you're reading the Bible and you encounter that, you just got to use context to see which way is it being referred to. The way it's being referred to right here is the sin nature. While we were in the flesh, that's synonymous with when we were under the law. When we were apart from Christ, under the law, we were in the flesh. 
Sinful passions were aroused by the law. Now, we know that the law of God exposes sin because the Bible tells us that. It makes us aware of our sin. That is a, a function of the law. If you never read the Bible, then you can hold that ignorant view that we're all great. Have you ever noticed that the people always running around saying, I'm great, you're great, we're all great, we're all awesome, they never read the Bible? Okay, there's a reason why. Because once you read the Bible, you can't, help, you can't hold that view any longer. The Bible is painful. The Bible is painful. You know, it lays us bare. Uh, the, the Bible has a way that, you know, we got all these ways that we justify our actions. And listen, even as Christians who read the Bible, we have ways that we sometimes drift into justifying my sin. Like we can have a sin in our life, but, but there's a little voice way down deep and it says something like, yeah, but it's not that bad because he did it first. You know, he, he, he said that to me first. It, it's, it's not that bad because, well, there are some other people who do it. Like we got all these ways that we justify sin. But when we read the word of God, it's like shining a spotlight into the shadows, the corners, the crevices. And then those ways that like that sentence that I justified myself, there'll be like a verse that just says, no, and then we see it. And it was like, oh, man, now I feel terrible. Okay. The law exposes sin. It does that. Paul says it in this passage. He says, I would not have known about coveting unless the law had said you shall not covet. And I think the reason he picked that one in particular is because we all have the law of God in our hearts, even those who don't have a Bible and don't read a Bible. And so the law of God is there, but we ignore it. Apart from Christ, we suppress it. But the big, really obvious external actions like murder, like we know that's bad, but then there are the internal things that if we don't read the word of God, we won't get honest about. But Paul says, I would not have known about coveting, desire, lust, greed. I wouldn't have known about coveting if the law had not told me you shall not covet. So I think that's why he specifically says that one. So the point is the word of God, the statutes of God, the commandments of God, the law of God, it exposes sin. That's a function of the law. But I hope what you're seeing is that this text says that, but it goes farther. It explains some things that we wouldn't know if the Bible didn't explain to us because we just, we just wouldn't get that honest. The primary point of this text shows us that not only does the law expose sin, it multiplies it. It multiplies it. It arouses it. It incites it. And before we get into the specifics, I, I want to try to help us see the big picture stuff again. So just a little bit more big picture, and then we'll start to get to the details there. God designed salvation to save us from the hell that we deserve and to transform our lives. God saved you in order to make you holy. And we don't just mean at the end, like right now, He's working on you to make you holy. And if you remember back in chapter six, where we begin at the very first opening verse of this whole section, verse one of chapter six, Paul brought up this question that people who deny the gospel of grace, salvation by, by, uh, by faith through God's grace, but legalists who teach salvation by works, there's an objection they always bring. 
our churches receive this objection, okay? When we talk in the community with people who believe salvation by works, this is, you know, verbatim kinds of objections that we hear. Here's the objection. If you go telling people that they're saved by grace, they'll go live like hell. They'll do whatever they want. If you tell them that they get full and free forgiveness in a moment, if they just believe, you're going to lead to ungodliness. We've heard that. This has been thrown against our church, but we're, it's not new. Like this was the Reformation. This was the early church. There's a reason why there's a lot of material in the New Testament about that right there. It's because those who say you're saved by works, they make this accusation. You're going to produce ungodly people. But Romans comes along and says, okay, so is that the case? Will the gospel of grace produce ungodly people? And the answer of, you know, chapter six over and over was, may it never be. And let me show you why. Chapter seven is continuing that. And here is the next point that is made. The gospel of grace will actually produce more obedience to God than the belief of salvation by works. Well, why is that? Because there are aspects of the human heart that you don't know unless the Bible explains it to you. And what chapter seven is showing is, is this. When we are under the law and in the flesh, and you know, we can come from different places when we're under the law. There's, there's just gross defiance to God and just not even trying, just complete you know, irreligion. But then there are also people like Paul. Paul was obsessed with the law. Paul said he loved God. Paul thought he was righteous. But he gets honest with himself about where he was when he was under the law. And he shows this. When we are under the law, we actually war against God because our, our heart is puffing out its chest against the rule of God. Paul, who claimed to love the law, actually said when it came to coveting and these desires, the very fact that the law told me not to do it made me want to do it more. It aroused this response. My rebellious heart sinned more by learning the commandment than it had before. It multiplied that. That's where we were under the law. But salvation and grace brings us to a new condition. It's a condition where we are united to the Lord Jesus Christ. We serve in a new kind of way in the spirit, transformation, new birth, new graces. The law doesn't come and pick you up when you're laying on the ground after you sin, dust you off and say, here, let me help you. The grace of Christ does. The grace of Christ comes to us and says, let me help you figure out some ways to beat your sin and come to obey God. Part of what we see is that there will be a transformation that takes place in our lives because we're joined to Christ. We receive the Holy Spirit. There's a new birth. We're joined in a new kind of way, a new connection with God where there are grace juices flowing to us in ways that were not before. And it actually produces more godly lives when we're saved by grace. That's the argument being made here. Okay. So if you follow that, that's kind of the big picture thing that's being shown. But to see all of that, we do need to see more of the details. 
So all of this happened in justification and it is resulting in change in our lives. But in order to explain that, he, she shows this truth that the law actually causes sin to flare up when we're under the law. So how is that exactly? What, what does he mean by that? Well, think through it with me. There's, there's quite a bit that we could see. Even after I'm done with today, I'll bet for the rest of the day, you'll think of examples that you've seen in your own lives. Proverbs 9:17 says, stolen water is sweet and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. What, what makes that stolen water sweet? What, what makes that forbidden bread taste pleasurable than normal? There's a way that something being forbidden makes it more enticing to the flesh. There's a way that knowing something is wrong to the flesh makes it more appealing. And there's a way that the authority of God causes our hearts to, to recoil at it, to recoil at his commandments and his statutes. And I think that's the essence of what he means in the passage. So every parent in the room has said amen because we see it in our children, that there's something about telling a kid no, and it's not everything, like we don't do that with every sin, like there are a lot of sins we all think are gross, and you know, sins that tempt me more than you, we've all got individual ones, those kinds of things, so it's not everything. But all of us have some ways that there's something enticing, there's something seductive, like, you know, it's, it's Dennis the Menace being told, don't touch that button, <laughs> don't push it, there's something about children being told at certain times, it's not everything, but certain things, don't you go, don't you go do this, that makes it like 10 times more. Those jelly beans have never looked so good until I was told don't touch them. There's a way that it becomes more seductive, it being forbidden. And it, it, there, there are limits and it's not to everything, but there's a real way that forbidden pleasures have an added seductiveness. They become even saucier. At BMW ran an, an ad in magazine um, years ago where they put a sealed envelope inside of the pages and on it they put in capital letters in big red, no, with an exclamation point, which was attempting to evoke that response like I'm not supposed to do it which guaranteed it was opened up and read. It was highly effective. TV shows will advertise themselves as the newest guilty pleasure. Recently, a TV show advertised itself like this. Sex, scandal, lies, murder, and that's only the first 10 minutes. And the show skyrockets to a hit. My question is why? Why does that work? Is, that, is it because humans are so righteous and love the law of God? That's why? No. There is something about the fleshly heart that loves bad, loves what is forbidden. There's something about being bad that makes activities in, enticing. And you know, I, I never want to come across as the fuddy-duddy who's like, throw your TV away or these kinds of things. But as you look at TV show after TV show and a new one becomes popular and 
We could name names. I'll just, you know, avoid it so as not to appear as that fuddy-duddy guy right now. But all the time, like what it is that makes the show appealing is the gross immorality of it all. Like the humor of watching and being entertained by something that is wicked. It's because the heart in the flesh thinks of bad as cool. In fact, if you, if you try to define what is the word cool, like what does it mean? I, I asked my uh, teenage daughters yesterday uh, some insights into this, like my generation used the word cool, forgive me if that's like totally not what the word is now. I asked them for a synonym. It seems like it's had some carrying power, so we'll just go with that right now. But if you try to define it, like, like what, what is the essence of cool? What is it in a, in a teen movie? <laughs> The, the cool actors that's there, like, what is it? It is that partying, defiant, non-compliant, rebellious attitude. Why is it appealing? It's because Romans 7 is true. It's because this really is describing the nature of our hearts. Guys, if you think about it, think about the insanity of this world. This is, Satan is influencing He's been able to brand bad as seductive and it's worked. It's because our hearts are drawn to it. He's been able to convince the world that if something is exceptionally pleasurable, then it's, it's naughty, it's bad, it's forbidden. It's even, even the word wicked gets used somehow as a, as a good way. The, the word bad, with sometimes a lot of cuss words attached onto it, are used to refer to strength or bravery. Like, do you see all of this messed up way that Satan has been able to rebrand bad as something to be desirable? And then what's, what's even crazy crazier is that he's been able to convince a culture that like, I mean, think about, th think about the hypocrisy and the ignorance of, of, of this movement and what he's able to do. He is able to convince people that if you're brave enough, if you're courageous enough, like if you're the maverick who, who, you know, swims upstream and you go against everybody then you'll go do this bad thing. The ignorance of that is, is, is not like culture is all moving towards godliness and wow, you are this maverick, courageous man that's going towards all, it's insane. And Francis Chan preached a sermon uh, to youth several years ago where he made the point, if you actually wanna do something that bucks the system, read your Bible. Nobody's actually doing that. Don't have the idea that just swimming with the rest of culture and standing for what the world does that somehow you're brave, you're not brave. That's the exact definition of cowardice. But notice how Satan is able to subtly redefine these things. Friends, at, at the end of it, we have to see some things about our hearts. The spirit of the world is opposed to God. And the spirit of believers still struggles We've not yet been delivered into absolute submission and joy in obedience to God. We still wrestle with those exact same kinds of things. The spirit of the world is opposed to God. And look over to Romans chapter eight for just a second there. Look at verse five. 
uh, as this discussion will be continued because the law stuff, it still continues even into chapter eight. Look at verse five. For those who are according to the flesh, okay? So this is apart from Christ. This was us, you Christian, before Christ. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. That's not that hard. You're in the flesh, we think about fleshly things. But those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh, watch this, is hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. That phrase there, where in the flesh, we are hostile to God. That's an incredibly important phrase. And I get it that if you are new to studying the Bible, this is one of those many places of the Bible you're gonna have a moment of crisis because th this message is completely contradictory to what you hear all around you. And, and numerous times I've been in those conversations with, with those that are not yet following Christ, but they kind of, you know, acknowledge Jesus, they'll say something like, look, just because I don't obey God doesn't mean I'm hostile to him. Take a step back. That's precisely what it means. When the king gives an order, the king, the Lord of heaven and earth gives an order and with his authority, he speaks to stand in defiance. That is the very definition of hostility. In the flesh, our hearts are hostile to God. As believers, we're trying to hunt down every corner, crevice, and shadow that still has hostility. And we're trying to hack it to death in order to make it submissive to God. But this is, we have, we have to see what the Bible says here in this. We have to see some things about our true human condition. I remember being a new Christian, and forgive me if I say this often, but I, I remember this being one of my moments of crisis. Being a new Christian and seeing the Bible say things like this. And I was like, man, I live in small town, Indiana. My neighbors are nice. My teachers are nice. Everybody I know is, is nice. So how is it that we're hostile to God? We have to begin reading the Bible to see how. Because as we read the Bible as Christians, we still continue to see dozens and dozens and dozens of ways that my heart is still resisting him. And there's been a lot of progress since the day I came to Christ. And what happens is what we see the Bible show is that when we are in the flesh and separated from Christ, that hostility defines the trajectory. When we're in the flesh and under the law, it's not to live as Christ, it's to live as me. And we live for the pleasures of the flesh and the trajectory. We don't participate in every sin that we possibly could and not to the depths that we possibly could, but our life is about my pleasure and my lordship. Coming to Christ brings a change of the heart, desires, condition, situation, not yet to perfection because we're still battling, but to a new and real way of living. And we have to see these things about our hearts. Um, my intention is not to try to pick on certain targets or easy sins because we can do that in the church, right? Like it's easy sometimes to take some sins that none of us struggle with and always bring that one up because we feel better about it. So if I bring up examples here, also understand this. Part of the point Paul is saying here is 
all of us, when we were in the flesh, we had our own ways that we puffed our chest against God. And the latter part of the chapter is we're still battling with these things. But think through some of the ways that we see people, we see sin flare up precisely because the law of God, the word of God made declarations of authority. Um, there are mothers who think of Christians as, you know, complete imbeciles. They think biblical morality is, you know, fuddy-duddy. And when they hear Christians talk about sexual purity, they'll roll their eyes loudly and then will actually encourage their daughters to dress provocatively in part just as a way to stick it to Christian morality. Just as a way to be like, see, there are parents who will rent certain kinds of movies for their kids partly just because Christians have standards and they've heard it and they've rolled their eyes and they thought, yeah, well, my kids, they're going to know how to live in this world. I'm like, you idiots. My kids are going to be fun. And so they rent these movies and, and expose their children to these things in part just as a way of saying, look what I'm doing to the law of God. Maybe one of the clearer ones, sexual deviations. Now I'm going to speak in general kinds of terms because we've got kids in the rooms, adults, you know, there are a lot more words that could be used that I, I won't use. But if you think about sexual deviations of numerous kinds, all exotic things out there, I'm trying to be vague without being graphic. Why are they so sought after? Like, why is there a community? Why, why is there an entice, enticingness about the, why is there a seductiveness to some of these things? It's precisely because it breaks the standard. It's precisely because it goes against what they see as the form and the model as designed by God. And, and then another one that may just be the clearest out of all of them. Friends, for 2,000 years, Christians have been bringing the message of the gospel to new places. And as the message of the gospel is explained, with many of the missionaries who have gone, they have done nothing but been humble and loving and serve. And yet what has been the response of the hearers? It has been to rage against the word of God. And Christians for 2,000 years have been martyred simply as the flesh warring against the word of God. And just time after time after time after time, we see ways that sin is multiplied exactly because the statutes of God, the law of God, the word of God made declarations. Sin flares to new heights. That's part of the point that scripture is making, though with some of those that I just gave, they're really blatant, but some of them are more subtle. Like Paul, the guy who thought of himself as, he was highly religious, but he thought of himself as righteous. He admits that secretly weighed down, I had desires roar within me just because the law of God told me not to. This is our hearts your ways will be different than my ways. And you might even have to give some thinking to what are some of the ways that for you, bad has been seductive because it was bad. But this is us in the flesh. This is where we are. 
And so let me, let me kind of look back here and summarize just a little bit here. Here's what it means about the law. It means that the law, when we're under the law, we're in a situation where we are unable to redeem ourselves and we are unable to obey God. Not in a true way. Oh, there can be some pharisaical external kinds of obedience, but not to truly keep the law of God. And so the irony is, Paul, before Christ, Paul who loved the law, was obsessed with the law, could not keep the law, though he claimed that he did. This is where we are apart from Christ. The law, chapter eight, verse three, Romans eight, three, if you look what it says there, the law is weak. The law is not evil. The law is good, but it is weak. It's weak in the terms that it is not able to save you and it is not even able to help you obey it. Again, the law doesn't come and help pick you up off the ground. The law just says, here's what's right. Here's what's wrong. Here's the punishment if you break it. And when we're in the flesh, our rebellious hearts are hostile to that law. Now there's still more he's gonna say on this subject through the text. In verses seven through 11, he's going to make an argument and we are in the future gonna spend some time with that, but we don't have time today because if we did, we wouldn't be able to get to the good news Good, good news, because it's been a lot of bad news so far. Like here's how evil we are. We need the good news and that is the counterpart to the bad news. So the bad news is the law incites sin. Here's the good news. Look at verse four with me again. Therefore, my brethren, you also were made to die to the law through the body of Christ so that you might be joined to another. There's the counter. You might be joined to another, to him who was raised from the dead. And here's the effect in order that we might bear fruit for God. Jump to verse six. But now we have been released from the law, having died to that which you're bound so that we serve in newness of the spirit. We serve, we serve God and we do it in a newness, a newness of the spirit, not an oldness of the letter. In Christ, now that we have been freed from the law, do you see the big point that we're not just joined to a new law? We're joined to a person. We're joined in relationship. We're joined to the Lord Jesus himself. So previously we were tied to a code. Now I'm tied to a person. I'm tied to Christ. Now, is there a law that we got to look to? Yes. And that's going to be the entire subject of a sermon in Romans 7 that we study. How do I relate to the law of God? How is me as a new covenant Christian, how am I to read the 10 commandments and things like that? So some of that is coming. There is a law that is our guide, but it's not the big deal in the new covenant that we're just like now tied to a new law. We're tied to a person. We have a law that helps guide us into how to, how to live for this person, but we're tied to Christ. So from code to Christ. And do you notice, here's a point to see as well. Do you notice the way that all of this is worded? Verse four does not say, you've been joined to Christ. Now you should go bear fruit. That's not what it says. 
Verse six doesn't say you died to the law. Now you should go serve in a new way in the spirit. These verses are not commands. Now, don't get the wrong idea. Don't think that there's not a command. Other passages will say all of these things as a command, but that's not the point he's making here. The point he's making here is once again, okay, let's pull out more of our theology words. These are more indicatives. Remember the indicatives versus imperatives things? And imperatives when you're told, go do this. And indicative is when you're told just, this is what it is. This is reality. That door is closed. That's an indicative. We're told an indicative here. You've been freed from the law. You've been joined to Christ. Now we serve in a new way. Now we bear fruit. This is the reality of what will happen. It is impossible to be under grace, joined with Christ, indwelt by the Holy Spirit of the living God and not go bear fruit. If you are joined to Christ, indwelt by the Spirit of the living God, something will happen. You are God's project. He is painting your canvas. He is beautifying your life. Something will happen happen. It's impossible for it not to. So part of what he is saying here is there is an indicative. This is what will happen. But some of the big point here is this. When we're under the law, what was our heart's attitude to the law of God? We saw that it's antagonistic. It's puffing its chest against us. And even Paul, who thought that he was submissive to the law of God, secretly down deep was hostile to the law of God. Apart from Christ, we're hostile to the authority, but now in Christ, what has happened? We serve in a new way and it's in the spirit, not by the letter, not by the letter. The point of him emphasizing not by the letter of the law there. He's emphasizing the way that like the Pharisees and others kept the law of God only externally. So there's a way to read the 10 commandments and you fall on your floor weeping in seeing your sin. And then there's a way to read the Ten Commandments where you go away going, huh, I'm a pretty great guy. And when you walk away going, huh, I'm a pretty great guy, you just lied to yourself. And you just interpreted the law of God in a way that it was not designed to. Because when you read the commandment, you shall not murder, there's one way to be like, I'm great. I've never done this. But what Jesus shows us, by the way, think of the genius of the Sermon on the Mount now in light of all of this. Jesus taught us how we are to rightly read the law of God, that there are a hundred ways to break the command of murder without actually killing someone in its early forms. Murder of the heart, bitterness, unforgiveness, when he says here that we're not just keeping it according to the letter and the strictness, we're not keeping it like the Pharisees who made everything external, we're serving in a new way internally. This is part of what he's getting at. We serve in a new way because God is awakening new things in, in us. Freedom from the law does not produce lawlessness to the truly born again Christian. So chapter six asks the question, Will salvation by grace cause people to be ungodly? And the answer is no. Freedom from the law produces more fruit. Why? Because there is something remarkable that happens 
when we are united to a person and filled with the Spirit. Not just united to a code, but united to Jesus himself. God has put you in a situation. God has placed you, Christian, into a relationship where you come to know him. And he knows you. You can relate to him. You have communion with him. He knows you. Yes, God has billions of people on this earth. I don't know how many people, how many children he has adopted that he has brought to himself, but he's infinite. He's able to know you personally, know the number of hairs on your head, the innermost thoughts of your heart, knows you better than you know you and can have relationship with each one of us and we are brought to him. We can know him. Paul said in Philippians 3 of Christ that his great goal in life is that I may know him. You're joined to Jesus. And part of that is the, here is the result of that. What Paul also said there in Philippians 1, to live is Christ. To live is Christ. We were once joined merely to a code and now to live is Christ. You're seeing the difference here. To live as Christ, it means that for the believer now, Christ sums up life. I'm not just externally acknowledging a code. I am living to know and glorify a person. To live as Christ. It's not, just to, it's not enough to just say things like, Jesus is really important to me. No, to live as Christ and to die is gain. For the believer, God is all in all. Every breath that we take is about Christ. The point and the end and the goal and the summary of life for the Christian is to glorify Christ, to know Christ, to make him known, to breathe the air that he gives us and exhale words of worship. To live is Christ. And think about how so much of the New Testament explains the new way that we serve God. Not the externalness of a code, but the newness of the way we serve Christ. So think about it. Why do you work your job? Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men. Why do we build houses, raise families? Why do we do small things like just the, the recreation on a Saturday or something? What is the focus? Colossians 3.17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to him, giving thanks through him to God the Father. What is the point of eating and drinking and sleeping like the most mundane things in life? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. What is it all about? Every single breath, every single word, every single decision, all of life to live is Christ. There's a dramatic difference between the external keeping of a code and being united to a person and to live is Christ. It is to be Christ all the time. Christ is the aim and the point and the meaning and the focus of all of life and what we are journeying towards. This is what we have been saved into, Christian. To live is Christ. The law of God, the law of Christ is a guide and a help to us. We are under the authority of the law of Christ, but not quite like 
it was when we were under the covenant of works and the law. We serve Christ and the law aids us in knowing how to do that. God saved us so that we would live this. And so even if you're a, a brand new Christian who has just recently turned to Christ and you're still working through all of this language of to live as Christ, like what does that even mean? You need to know this is what God is working to bring you to. Even if you don't know it, this is what he's doing. But when we know it and lean into it, when we go hard in our sanctification, we will bear 10 times more fruit. But you died to the law so that you could be joined to Christ so that we would live out that to live is Christ. So Christian, the call here is for us to go and do so. So even though this passage doesn't give commands like go bear fruit and go serve in newness of the spirit, you know that it is implied instruction that comes up in other places. This is the indicative, but here is the calling. What God saved us into Let's go do and do with energy. We have to move service to Christ. We have to move obedience from a peripheral matter to the place of centrality, to the place that everything else in my life now revolves around this one thing. To live is Christ. This is what we are called to. And to you who have not yet turned to Christ, to you, so to use the language of this text, you're still in the flesh. You're still under the law, meaning that right now your situation is eternal life is based on your obedience and your ability to perform his commandments. And it is not saying anything cruel against you. This is all of us apart from Christ. You have fallen short. You have no chance, no chance of making eternal life based on your performance and left on your own. What you need is forgiveness of sins. What you need is to be joined to the one who went as a forerunner before us. You need to be joined to Christ and he is your access, your entrance, your righteousness counted to you. Trust in Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for the glory of what you've done again and again after we get done with the passage. We're just amazed, amazed at the depth, at the complexity. Uh, Lord, these are deep and mysterious things you've revealed to us, but Father, we see the goodness of it. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for bringing us into this transformation of life, though we, though we feel its difficulty. Please, God, accomplish it more and more. Please, God, bless us as a church family that we will grow in Christ as individuals and then together. And Father, for any in the room that has not yet turned to Christ, Lord, I, I pray, give them eyes to see. Shine the light of your word onto the sin that they've not acknowledged so that they see their desperation, oh God. Please give us your blessing. We ask this in Christ. Amen. The Lord bless you. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this week's message. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.